Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Today on the show, we have Mr. Mike Grubowski. He is a senior lighting designer at LDG, the Lighting Design Group. He's an A29 lighting designer. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so you, in fact, were a listener request. That's a neat thing. I kind of dug that. It sort of took me by surprise, to be honest, that, especially seeing everyone else you've had. That's uh, quite an honor. So I appreciate that. I do take those seriously. I, uh, Steve Lieberman, um, oh, yeah. who does EDM events, was another mm-hmm. listener request. And, you know, I nice. appreciate it because it's like it opens me up to the idea of like, oh, you know, it hadn't occurred to me to have him on the show. And, you know, it was a good conversation about a whole area of the business that I'm not really in. That's cool. Yeah. And so you've been so deep into television for so long. So you, ha- so how long have you been in television? Oh, uh, working in TV for going on about fifteen plus years now. And but you started doing theater. Correct. You actually went to theater conservatory. Correct. Yeah. Uh, similar to you, I ended up at SUNY Purchase. Uh, I think we crossed over. I think your senior year was my freshman year, if I recall correctly. That sounds right. Um, and uh, I dug it. You know, I I grew up working in theater, and I. Before any of this, I started as a sideshow geek. I worked as a street magician, as a busker on in South Philly and in Philly and bouncing around. One of my first jobs was working, uh, <laughs> was trying to help light uh, Sideshow Benny during the Philly Fringe Festival uh, yo many years ago and trying to help him out in giant, you know, VHS recorder to record his stuff. Uh, bounced around in theater and um, selfishly, frankly, uh, it was easier to work as an electrician in theater than slamming a nail in your face all day on a Saturday. Um, but yeah, it was. And once I got there, it really hit home of how much theater, the arts, all that was a real good home for me. It's sort of a weird Island of misfit toys that seems to end up in this industry. Um, and I think a lot of us have a similar coming up of, you know, it just hits us in the right way in the right person at the right time, but start it in theater and Bounced around a lot, did a little Broadway, mostly off-Broadway. Afterwards, out of school, I drafted. That was honestly the thing that paid the bills for the first couple of years right out of school. Well, what uh, stuff are you drafting on? Uh, at that point, I was one of the guys, you know, and this will definitely date this, uh, was one of the ones who did AutoCAD, MiniCAD, and hand drafting. Um, and could basically, you give me a file or a drafting, and I'll turn it into one of the other formats. Um, yeah, there was an know, interesting moment there where, like, that was the, you know, everyone needed to have all their drawings transferred over, and they all wanted it in, in both MiniCAD and AutoCAD because no one quite knew that Vectorworks was going to win. Correct, and there was no semblance of that. No one had any idea. You know, I remember still drafting uh, blocks in AutoCAD of literally scanning field templates and tracing the outline and extruding them and, you know, sending out block packs like that. So it, it existed in a weird time. And frankly, the drafting skills sort of are wider than this industry. You know, for a little while, I was drafting boats at a maritime company. Uh, I worked at an HVAC firm as overhired to do uh, pipe and grid drawings. And, you know, not even pipe and grid as we think of it as pipe and infrastructure uh, for the trades. Uh, so that was a great thing that paid the bills and honestly gave me a lot of exposure to different aspects of the industry and not just theater or not just lighting or do scenic drafting and it sort of broadened my horizons a bit and that's how i stumbled into ldg and how i stumbled into television in general um another purchase grad jordan humphrey uh worked at lighting design group at the time and they needed an extra draftsman to come on and i could sort of float between their production department drafting as well as their systems drafting uh and help get things going that way uh, so that was sort of my first in with LTG and then uh, in the broader sort of TV sense of getting into that end of things. What have your last seven months been like? About the same as everyone. It has been weird. It has been <laughs> nothing but weird. Um, it really has been an instant and it has been forever at the same time. Um, it's been a lot of weird moments, I guess is the best way I can put it. Um I remember everything shut down that Friday, March 13th. Uh, my wife, she works at a costume shop uh, and everything shut down there. So she was shut down as soon as Broadway shut down. Um, but we also, uh, Wedding Design Group also does some coverage for Good Morning America. Uh, they have their normal um, routine of designers who are, are 
LDs who are in to cover the show. Uh, but if they take vacation or can't find coverage, uh, occasionally one of us will step in to help with that coverage. And about 10 days after everything shut down, uh, I covered four or five days over at uh, GMA. And one of the longtime cameramen had the, uh, there had passed away. There was a lot of trepidation. I mean, I'm sure you remember the early moments of all this. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of what's okay, what isn't, how to operate again. And they were doing a wildly reduced staff. I mean, it was basically two cameras, one anchor, small, small, small electrics team, uh, small producing team. At the time, it was still unclear quite how the virus worked. Like, you know, we were still being told not to wear masks. Yeah. And at that point, the, uh, ABC and uh, GMA had, in, had introduced 100% mask mandate. Like, that's a non-starter. Uh, temperature checks. And I will say, they did, at the time, were as proactive and as good as they could. I remember seeing the janitorial staff working like monsters. Just every – their giant elevators, and they were – uh, cleaning every surface. And one of the weirder things, and this is just for some of the folks who really do TV a lot, and, you know, it'll be a weird moment for you. The control room had all its doors open. They wanted people to minimize touching handles and touching doorways. So every doorway was propped open. Mm. So hearing a director trying to, like, call a show sort of quiet like this in the middle of a long show where they're usually shouting and da 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 was a really weird experience. Uh, and going into Times Square, like it was the middle of I Am Legend with literally no one there was absolutely bonkers and surreal. Um, like no one at 11 a.m. in the middle of Times Square was absolutely bizarre. Um, but the rest of it has been, you know, similar to everyone else. There was no work for anyone. Um, you know, trying to do what I could to help people, try and help the people in your bubble. And just my wife and I pretty much just staying here you know, taking up whatever weird new hobby sort of struck our fancy. Um, the Where the aspect we drifted into the longer it went, uh, particularly uh, when George Floyd was murdered and a lot of uh, those big sort of flashpoint events had sort of started piling up. Yeah. Uh, I do a lot of work with BET uh, and particularly BET News. And they have been impassioned to try and get this message out, to get these important stories out there. Uh, so I was working with their production team quite a bit, uh, trying to figure out how to do it, how to help them do that. Um, so a lot of what I was doing as we moved later into those events in that moment is working through how to do sort of remote DP work, which sounds as ludicrous as it is. Um, but it was still, everyone was still figuring out how to do this sort of stuff of let's raise up your laptop. So the camera is at your eye line. Uh, let's make sure there's not a window in your background. Like I'd hop on zoom calls and try and orient it and try and the hardest part was always getting the framing right to get yeah. the framing consistent. And it still is like, it's, it's one of those things that makes me crazy, but like, so the show cuts a little bit better or talking to them of what lights they have on. Let's turn this on. Let's turn that off. Um, so a lot of work turned into that and doing that sort of weird remote consulting sort of stuff. I'm fascinated and sort of looking, hopefully looking forward to seeing what sort of systemic industry wide change this affects. I mean, how many times have we heard it? Every one of us in this industry, whether it's television, theater, events, concerts, any of it, oh, we'll just slog through it. Oh, we'll just suck it up. Oh, we'll just push through. And that really can't be the norm anymore. Yeah, we slammed into a thing you could not slog through. Yeah, you know what I mean? And I think that impacts going forward, too. All the, oh, I'm just going to show up. I only got a cough. Well, no, that's not going to fly anymore. Yeah. Oh, I, I just have the sniffles. I'll be fine. Well, no, that doesn't fly anymore. And I think that's it's going to make things different. And I think it ultimately, if it's treated well and thoughtfully and professionally, I think it can be a good thing. I don't, I mean, I see so many people who literally and figuratively are killing themselves in this industry that maybe some more responsibility in that end is not going to be the worst thing that comes out of all this. Yeah. I mean, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I get it. I remember um, Haskell Wexler mm -hmm. tried to, you know, throw his weight behind, you know, you can't work people for 16 hours and then they have to drive home and then come back, you know, four hours later. You, you know, and I was like, okay, well, if they wouldn't listen to him, they're not going to listen to anybody. But I think the other aspect is that I find interesting that 
I think if talent drives it, especially in our end of things, um, I, I go back to GMA or actually another even better example, more recently, Judge Judy. Uh, we're working on her show and helping out with that. Um, and she has insisted that standards be very stringent. And if someone is presenting symptoms, we had one of our folks who was going to cover that show, um, who is in contact even with someone. He was just recently tested, was negative, he was fine, but his partner potentially had some symptoms. Um, so we arranged that he could, similar to what we are, zoom in so he could check things. The electrician and staff on there would execute normally. Um, and I think, it, again, it's everyone still made their money, everyone still made their rates, but everyone was safe. Yeah. You know, and I think subtle accommodations and look, that's a tremendously specific example that's not going to work for everything. Um, but I think finding that balance, especially if it's uh, driven, especially in the TV and by that very specific talent demands who are going to drive a lot of it, I, I think it's a possibility. And I think it could find a little bit of equilibrium. You're onto something there for sure. Uh, and hopefully, you know. you know, hopefully you're right. And, and, you know, that, and people just sort of don't let it slack back to what it was. Yeah. As long as sort of it is, is it wasn't working. No, I mean, it was, it was all reaching a weird boiling point, a weird zero point. And it's a hard thing, right? I mean, we were lucky. We went to an interesting conservatory that prepared us fairly well, I think for getting out into the world a bit. Um, but there, for as many conservatories and focus programs as there can be, there are so many programs, and this is not to slight any of them, but there are just such a dearth of programs that are putting out people uh, who are trying to become LDs and this and that, that it saturates the market more than the amount of jobs that exist. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a bit, this is going to sound a little harsh, it's, it feels a bit disingenuous on some of those programs' parts to sell these folks on a dream without telling them how tremendously difficult it is or luck-based. I think a lot of it, the ones of us who do well in this, I think in a certain aspect, there's more than a little bit of luck involved. Meeting the right person at the right time, finding that right connection. Uh, I think that's one thing Purchase did well. It fosters a lot of connections and interconnectivity amongst people. Um, but you have that wide dearth of people and not as many jobs as necessarily exist to what they think they want to do. You know, the other thing is, you know, comprehending that there are other jobs, that there are other jobs you can, would, could be training people for. By a mile. That people leave not knowing how to do, that mm -hmm. have to learn out there in the world. And, yes. you know, could they have a leg up on other people if they learned other skills? Oh, by a mile. I That I completely agree with because it's hard. I mean, most of the folks coming out of school don't think it's, you know, LD associate assistant, master electrician and electrician. And that's like the half dozen roles that you can play. And that that's it. And there are so many and they keep evolving, especially as media and content becomes more rapidly and completely involved in the process. Screen, screen producing. Uh, you guys uh, chat with Laura, I think, oh, Laura Frank. And yeah. that's even like, yeah, like that whole bonkers end of it. Like, you know, it's such a weird thing that you have to be so deep in the industry or at least involved to even realize the breadth of jobs that are out there and exist. That could be a possibility that might be an even better fit for you yeah. or, you know, and and find your nook, find your niche. And uh, I don't know. And I don't know what a good way is for that. You know, it's uh, it, it's such a small and insular community and in a lot of ways, very welcoming, but it is, it's very sort of insular. So unless you get in a bit, it's hard to find those nooks and crannies. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about a couple of the shows you've done sure. uh, sort of in, in detail. Uh, yeah. if we could start with the one that everybody I'm sure has seen at least once, uh, Dick Clark's rock and Eve. <laughs> that is the show. I think that has the longest title, uh, of any show I've ever worked on. What's the full title? I think it's, uh, Dick Clark's New Year's Rocking Eve 2020 featuring Ryan Seacrest. I think that is its full, like, you know, it's hard to put on a gobo, I guess is my <laughs> point. And actually, I think I even forgot it's ABC presents <laughs> Dick's, you know, like it, it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and there's four trademark logo. Yeah, and, and a copyright on the back. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> 
Um, that's a neat one. And it's a weird one. And I always uh, have to point out because it's there's a lot of confusion around it. And I appreciate you bringing it up because I, I hopefully get to explain some of it. Um, so I do the uh, New York ABC portion. And the reason I'm very specific about it is because uh, there are a couple other amazing LDs who are involved in the project in addition to me. So we have Paul Miller, who works for the Times Square Alliance. And I know I'm going to screw some of these details up. So, Paul, if you're listening, I apologize. Uh, Paul does basically what's called the bid stage. That's the main performance stage in the middle of Times Square. Well, I feel like a lot of shows like this have, you know, there is not just yeah. one person. There's a lot of different creative things happening. Oh, by a mile. Uh, the production meeting itself is in and of itself one of the neatest and weirdest things. Uh, so Paul does the bid stage uptown. Uh, that's the big stage at the uh, base of the Red Stairs. At Duffy Square. At Duffy Square, correct. He takes care of all of that sort of stuff up there. Um, that stage up there, for any folks who haven't been there uh, in person, actually has dozens of performance throughout the evening. Um, we send up our light box that has the New Year's Rock and Eve logo. Uh, on it and he and his team will sort of coordinate with them of like color palettes and sort of the general vibe of what our show is meanwhile uh lee rose uh, another again amazing ld who's based out on the west coast takes care of what you'll see as the west coast performances uh that are typically what we call like the warehouse performances then i'll take care of the new york abc portion which is the platform in the middle of Times Square, and then the after-midnight portion that takes place upstairs in the Marquee Studio at uh, 1500 Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it is, and it was kind of neat. For the longest time when, uh, so this is kind of the neat fun fact for me, I'm the second LD, and only the second LD who's done the New Year's Rock and Eve show. Oh, really? Uh, Dennis Size, who is the vice president of design at LDG, uh, premiered it in 72. He had said, He's going to do that show for 30 years or until Dick Clark passed away. Uh, unfortunately, oh. that happened in synchronicity. Yeah. Uh, I think Dick had passed in April of 2012, if I recall, and I took it over uh, that subsequent year. Prior to that, I had done a bunch of the MTV ones. Uh, so, you know, I, I was used to being out in the middle of Times Square and dealing with that sort of mayhem. I mean, I remember one year myself and director Adam Height were running between Times Square and seaside heights because we had snooky in a ball drop and we were going to lower her at midnight um it's a whole thing dear god it's not a sentence you get to say often there's definitely those moments where you say a sentence and then you hear that sentence <laughs> that just came out but so yeah so uh i took it over in 2012 into 2013 and uh lee and i and a few of us really sort of took advantage of that moment uh the show had always had a look had always had that dick clark look um and it had a lot of incandescent, a lot of gel, a lot of very classic look to it. It looked awfully like a studio, even though it took place out in the open air. It did, very much so. And then in 2012, with Dick passing, we took that as a moment to sort of have a reset for the show a little bit. Um, it was, we introduced a lot of LED elements, uh, a little more whiz-bang sort of stuff. Uh, and it took it as an opportunity to marry the West Coast show and East Coast show a little more closely. Because uh, the West Coast show, because it, by its nature of being more performance-based, had evolved a little more quickly. So we took that as a moment to pull them together uh, through stuff like accents. Just like um, the platform itself is rung with... Uh, I call her accent tubes just to give it that sort of bit of motion and look. Um, we added some of the LED elements that they had out there just to keep that, again, in a little more synchronicity. Uh, but we learned a lot with it. Like uh, that show, for all the evolutions we've made with it, uh, talent on that platform is still lit with four REX uh, 2.5K HMIs. There's a two 2.5s and two fours. The gear out there and my local one team out there, Joey Cards, Eddie Marino before him, Ryan Phillips, like all those cats, uh, you know, Flo, Jane, all of them. And I am missing a more than I can count. Those dudes are rock stars. Marshall is the dude who lives under the platforms, putting together all the distro for that. And God bless him for it. Mm -hmm. But that's the one thing that we've had to really dial in and has been a fundamental touch point for me. That rig needs to be bulletproof. We're on air from 8.30 p.m. until one of the biggest midnight moments you'll ever see, 
and then on for another half hour outside before we go inside for another hour. So weather can't kill it. Um, so that's why we stayed with the HMIs. We've had weather issues with one of the weirdest that I never would have suspected. Uh, studio force, a regular old studio force uh, is, should be fine. But when you get to such cold temperatures, I remember a couple of years ago at midnight, it was minus 10 degrees. At that point, heat sink for LEDs becomes cold sink. You have LCD screens freezing. I remember we had heating pads wrapped around stuff, and we tried desperately to keep everything as tight and tidy as we can. But you know, going back to the HMIs, that kept it. I we knew at that point talent would be bulletproof. We could make them look pretty, even if some of the, the bells and whistles went away. Um, and it gave us it gives us a chance annually um, to sort of show off some new gear. Every year we try and add one or two new things, or take a new fixture that's about to get released and incorporate it into there. Like for example, um, last year we used not a new fixture, but they um, in part we used the BMFLs um, with the RoboSpot system because one of the fun parts for us. It's not just that one picture. We're not just looking at that platform there. You see it in bump shots. We light up actually all of Times Square. I have a four 12Ks that when you go to those wide shots of Times Square, literally on any network, we're providing sort of base level for about 44th Street to 50th Street just to bring up the general illuminance. And, and you can't do balloons because you don't want to see the balloons when people go to the Correct. super wides, right? Correct. And because we have chopper shots. And oh, that's right, the other yeah. thing. And that's the other part that we play with. And we have cameras that are on the Marriott over there. You know, they're all over blocks away. One of the things that um, the RoboSpot system let us do was pick and choose when we had camera flares. So it was a little unconventional. We're not lighting talent with it. I'm literally having a guy panning it to pick off a chopper that's flying over central park 10 blocks away just to give a little ping to the camera um so like interesting and fun stuff like that you know the year before we had used uh the new chauvet ip rated strip lights and put them on the rails and it was a fortunate year because it poured that year you know and otherwise there's two platforms there's one 16 by 16 talent platform one 16 by 16 jib platform we're tucked away in a little tent right in the middle and it's our little cave in the middle of times square uh hanging out there and in the rain and the poor. And it's, I will say one of the neatest things about it. It's a family. I'm the kid of the group even. And I've been doing shows in Times Square for going on 10 years now for New Year's Eve. Now, if I can ask you about um, what your interactions with Paul Miller's side of things are, mm-hmm. do you have any input into any of that or is it all just him? No, it's pretty much all him, except the, the wild card stuff is again, all this, he and his team have so little time because there's so many acts, even with the marquee acts, um, you know, he makes it beautiful. He does a fantastic job up there. A lot of what my stuff is, is five second phone calls up to either he or the programmers or, Hey, we really want to drive purple's hard on this or da, 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 or we heard from their team red is a no go or, you know, it's ballpark guidance stuff of, um, just to make sure it feels like it's the same show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, otherwise, I mean, come on, he, he's done it forever. Same with Lee. Like we've all done this forever. There's no need to micromanage or make it harder than it needs to be on any one of us. I'm just asking. Uh, you know, so it is one of the nicest, chillest collaborations, I guess, is my way of thinking about it. So quite a bit gets carried over year to year, clearly. Yep. Um, but when do you start talking about this year and what this year is going to be? A lot of it does carry over year to year. Um, and I think, we really sort of kick off conversations in a normal year in the summer, just quick and casual, you know, any big reinventions this year, any big moments, gimmicks, you know, anything outside the norm that we have to think through. I mean, the thing is this show has been going on for over 30 years. It has been whittled to a fine point. Um, You know uh, I think the biggest reinvention we did in recent years was last year uh, for the longest time we've used uh, one by one light panels because Ryan and then Jenny McCarthy used to be with the show. And then um, uh, she moved on after uh, two years ago, but we would run them around all of t- Times Square. And part of the logistics of that is we have to have small strike teams doing that. Yeah. 
stagehands call me. I, they, they've dubbed me the defensive coordinator because uh, I'm sitting in the tent with the headset on and just shouting at them basically, all right, camera one, camera left, go, okay, take it two steps back, two steps back, right camera, take in, 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 hold, stay there. He's going to walk backwards and go, okay, ready, stand by on his move and go, one, two, three, stand by on hold. He's going to cheat on you. He's going to make it look like he's going right. He's going to go left. He's going to go left and he goes left, go with him, you know, and just doing that for four and a half hours. I need a lot of tea and honey. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really the, the part of it that we reinvented was changing it from those one by ones uh, to Titan tubes. Oh, yeah. um, because we get the output. And the one thing that always, even with a Shamir or anything like that, you still get a smaller box. You still get a little smaller form. Those Titan tubes don't necessarily throw quite as far, but we don't need that. But it gives us full body coverage and broader crown coverage uh, in a nice way. So it took a little reinventing on, you know, the guy's prototyping different handles and configurations and way to hold it and, you know, manipulate it. Um, but the other side benefit, it made it really easy when uh, Ryan had to go from like the bid stage all the way uptown for this uh, roof cameras and remote camera ops to find him because the guys would just swing around that Titan tube like it was a lightsaber mm-hmm. and you could see it in the middle of the crowd. Um, so that has helped us do some of our bits and gimmicks out there. Um, that's actually a really ingenious use of that technology. You know, I have to admit, it did not occur to me to use a Titan as a portable Kino. That yeah. is a damn good idea. <laughs> Feel free to steal it. It works out great. Uh, it is super awesome. It came to us. Uh, I did, I mean, the beginning of this year, end of last year, LDG does a lot of news stuff. Uh, I've fallen in with the NBC crowd a lot. I did a lot of the remote town halls that you may have seen late last year into this year of, oh, it's Chris Hayes in Charleston. It's Chris Hayes in Detroit. He's in LA and Mm -hmm. this and that. Um, And those Titan tubes were a silly and dumb thing to just chuck a couple on the order because they're relatively speaking ubiquitous at this point. Um, Most shops even out of town have them and they were perfect for makeup lights. Oh, makeup's going to be in this room. Oh, they're moving to this room now. Great. I don't have to think about it. They're on, they're on battery. Just go. Oh, you're moving there. They just moved to another room. And again, you know, you've dealt with it. When you're on a location job, I, I don't have the bandwidth to think about the two lights chasing around the 14 different rooms makeup's going to move between. So are you using just one? You have, you have like two bound together? Yeah, we're doing two and two. So we have we typically have two ops. We can really get away with one. Uh, but again, between the cold and the distance, I don't want to ever have to worry about if one fails or something like that. I always have double up, you know, especially on that. We're live for four and a half hours. Every bit of contingency I can work into it, I do. It is, as the guys also joke about, it's a show about paranoia. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. everything is a redundant, you know. So you mentioned part of what you're doing is that you're talking the the teams through the moves they're going to have to make so that, they, yep. so that way they can stay on the person. That a camera person that maybe is nowhere near them is shooting. Which I feel yep. like is a major difference from what we've seen in a lot of cases where, you know, if you're doing light panels, you're kind of with the camera operator. You're with the steady op usually, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we have points where we're shooting it from two blocks, three blocks away where it's counterintuitive. I'm having to tell them to back up four, five, six feet further than would make sense so the camera can get the shot as they're juicing the level so they can get it. And normally they're holding it it's an audio podcast and i'm showing you how i'm holding it but they hold it up higher uh sort of above their head walk into the wind uh, for us mike yeah exactly <laughs> uh but if that way they know they can hold it lower and sort of up light a little bit but that way it avoids that camera shot that might be coming from a block and a half away and 10 stories up uh so it's you know staring at a multi-view and punching around like a madman uh while accommodating uh, it's non-traditional i guess is the mm-hmm. best way to put it so uh, what else are you doing? What else is your team doing? And sort of how large is your personal support team? Mine is three guys. It's myself uh, and two others. Because while we're building, we only uh, get out there usually on the 27th or 28th um, to start building the stage. Uh, Mountain and the gang will build the stage. We have those couple days and inevitably one day is lost to weather. Like that's sort mm-hmm. of baked into the schedule. Uh it's the end of December in the Northeast. One day it's going to rain, snow, or just be a mess. Um, so we start build typically on the 27th or 28th. The 30th is our biggest rehearsal day. Uh, 31st, we're in it all day. 
there's some pre-tapes usually on the 30th. Uh, a lot, most of the time it's VO stuff uh, or bumper stuff. Uh, but my team itself is only three guys. It's myself, um, Wolf Ramat, and Jeremy Dominic was, were the team who was with me the past couple of years uh, because we're loading in concurrently upstairs. And that's the interesting one because we're working around Good Morning America's schedule. Um, so whenever their last day is before they start rolling into pre-tape days, that's when we have to flip that entire upstairs area into our Rock and Eve setup. So I'll typically stay outside since I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, <laughs> I'll send one of the guys inside to start banging that around. And then usually Wolfram will be the one who floats back and forth to just sort of keep the communication open. Okay. So, you, you know, you already kind of gave us an overview of what you were up to Ooh. before you got into the theater conservatory. And, but I'd like to ask you why. I mean, you said that you realized that busking uh, stuff is yep. it's all it's all part and parcel with the arts. And I, that's absolutely true. And I feel like the fringe is one great place to learn that. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was it that made you say lighting? What was it that made you say theater conservatory? I think especially as a kid and growing up, my pop was a IBEW guy. My mom would stay at home, like, but like the sense of jobs, it was a very blue collar neighborhood. I grew up in Philly. The sense of jobs were that jobs were, you know, you're a plumber, an electrician, maybe a doctor or a lawyer. It was very uh, traditional, I guess, is sort of the thought process on it. Um, so meandering, going to a great high school, I went to, I've been friends for uh, high school out in uh, just outside of Philly. And had a wonderful theater teacher there and just sort of Fran Brooks and uh, Megan Hollinger and Darla Max and all of them were excellent and gave me an insight that to that point, and especially growing up, hadn't really twigged to that the arts is a job, like the arts can be a job. Um, and that was an interesting, like, I think that was the germ of it all. Um, because, you know, and it's a weird conversation. You still hear it playing out a million times all over the place and funding for the arts and all that, like that. The arts in a lot of ways are treated as optional or thought of as optional or yeah. as, you know. Um, Britain's uh, pandemic scheme, you know, they just said that, you know, the arts are a non-viable career. Yeah. And like, what? That's insane. You know, because again, I think too many people, and I don't mean this as any denigration of, of the visual arts, people think of the arts as a painting on the wall. You know what I mean? And think of it in that tremendously narrow worldview. You know, they think of music as music. They don't think of music as art. They don't, they think of theater as theater, but not theater as art. Um, and don't realize how broad and encompassing that concept is. So I think that's what one of the biggest things that drove me to that idea. Cause I think that just sort of became that splinter in the brain moment. Like it became that itch you couldn't scratch of, wow, art is a job. Like I can actually get paid to do this. And like, make a living doing this mm -hmm. and maybe some weird version of it. Uh, so that's what really pushed me to pursue it, especially in high school. And I realized I was getting paid to work as an electrician. I would, you know, swing a wrench and work at some of these theaters. And you add that to the sense of community that you get out of it. I mean, I am still dear friends. Talked to some of them just a week or two ago with some of the TDs and uh, head electricians and all that, that I met, 25 years ago working as a you know dumb kid in philly and that cool sense of community combined with that this can be a real job like it sort of seemed like a no-brainer you know okay. to that point nothing else had sort of caught my attention in that way uh so i sort of was all right screw it i'm all in you know all right and then what about lighting to me that was the one that made sense and it was so neat and ephemeral and just sort of there was something very interesting about building something with literally nothing you know yeah. the idea of putting a layer of paint in the air that doesn't really exist it's wildly intangible and just the weirdness and sort of esoteric quality of like i'm playing with something that sort of in a certain sense doesn't really exist in this space and is just for that moment that sort of captured my imagination in a lot of ways so uh, I think that's how it right. sort of drove down that path. And then how did you learn that lighting was so much bigger than just plays and musicals? Through drafting, oh, honestly. that's fascinating. Like, you know, uh, especially I remember vividly when I went to LDG to do some of that drafting work, seeing a television plot for the first time, which, as you know, at least a lot of the times is wildly different than a traditionally laid out theater plot, you know, especially studio lighting and studio plots like that. 
and that whole breadth of gear that's beyond the theater end. To this day, it still blows my mind that more theaters and more theatrical LDs don't use more of the grip equipment and all that weird available stuff. Like, this is so dumb. I remember being so grumpy and angry when at one point I had, I was in college, went back to a theater, was helping out. And like, they had to mount a light, a little Fresnel on top of a set, on top of a flat. And, you know, they're like, okay, so we'll drill through and we'll through bolt. It's like, could just get a pigeon plate. The lighting order's coming tomorrow. Like, it's literally made to do that. Now we got to, it's like, really? And, you know, it, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I understand the reticence a lot of the time, uh, but it's a whole breadth of gear that was like interesting. Uh, and I think especially tell it, it's just an interesting balance of technical stuff and physical stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky I've been able to do location work. I was just out on Long Island in the middle of a yard for three days dealing with silks and heavy lights and this and that. And then I'll go into a studio and do a more traditional look. So it's all over the place. And I think that's, especially for TV, part of the appeal of doing that. What you brought up there is exactly one of the reasons that I wanted to do the show. If you don't work in theater, do you know about you know, drop-down hangers? Do you know about maffer clamps? Do you know about, ah. you know, the, you know if, in case you're working in an unusual space, you know, do you know about the drop ceiling hangers? You know, that, that ah. all these things exist. And they're cheap. I think people think, oh, TV stuff is expensive. I promise a piece of Schedule 40 and a couple of cheese barrels are gone. Probably cost you about the same as a stirrup hanger at this yeah. point, you know. And the stirrup hanger will get you done faster and give you a, a better ability to adjust the height if you need. Yeah, and I'm spoiled. I, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have done a lot of location work and be able to get into some like deep dive grip stuff. Don't forget that you have a relationship with a shop and your salesman. <laughs> Ask for a tour of the grip department. Yeah. They want to educate you about the stuff that they own that you're currently not renting. Yeah, or go to, I mean, MSE Grip. Look at their site. Like, it's broken down really kind of easy and they have little demo videos and barbazon has it all on display yep even bnh has a lot out there you know like that's a really good point bnh has everything on display yeah just go look at it you know poke at it i promise i'm still learning it all and there's neat ways to rig stuff that make life easier uh i did the new hampshire primary for nbc and we were up in a venue uh in the armory up there and we had a lot of uh pipe run between the trussing struts of the ceiling yeah it was all clamped in but some of it was still rolling a little so a little maffer clamp on the bottom just to hold it and just so it twigged into the ceiling. So it, that little bit of, you know, rollout would stop. Man, that was just easy. And it let us quick rig it. Didn't need tools. Guy goes up, flies it in. Super quick and easy. Speaking of television, speaking of studios, uh, you know, I know you redesigned the MTV studio. Twice, actually. And, you know, I kind of wanted to ask you what you did, what your sort of job was and what this whole scope of the thing was. Sure. Uh, so that was an interesting one. That studio has gone through two major renovations uh, in the past 10 years. So that studio had been at uh, 1515 Broadway for a long time, since the late 90s. Uh, and it was when it was opened, it was three studio spaces that went from 44th Street to 45th Street. Uh, and there was the Uptown Studio, the Midtown Studio, and the Downtown Studio. Uptown Studio, most people remember and recognize from like the old TRL studio. Midtown was the sort of black box space that they would occasionally put TRL in uh, if they were doing another special in Uptown. And Downtown was tiny little ad hoc studio. Yo! MTV Raps came out of there for a little bit. So uh, there were sort of iconic shows that came out of all of them. In 09, I believe it was a 10-year lease that they had signed. Uh, had expired. And at that point, TRL uh, had just finished its run uh, a year or two prior. They didn't have any sort of workhorse show. And suddenly you're going from 99, you know, Times Square prices to 2009 Times Square prices. And it, it wasn't viable. So at that point, that's where the first renovation came into play. Um, they basically took the old Midtown and Downtown studios, combined that into one studio that was roughly the same size as the old Uptown studio. That old Uptown studio became the Aeropostale that was in Times Square for years. You know, it's also a weird moment going into an Aeropostale and like that stack of t-shirts is where I used to sit. Huh. <laughs> um, so part of the renovation, once we started doing it um, was updating it, it was all dimmers and raceways for years um, and trying to modernize and to a certain extent, future-proof it as much as we reasonably could without overguessing. And I think that's sort of the hard part of any of these renovations that happen right now is you don't want to overcommit necessarily one direction or another in case there is a pivot that happens in five years or 10 years. 
so a lot of what we did, we went to a hot power and DMX system. So hot power in the grid every four feet and change-ish. Uh, DMX ports every six feet. The old MTV used to run its whole existence off of an expression for white lights and a hog, hog two yeah. uh, for movers and stuff. And we moved them to uh, MA2 light. Uh, so there was a bit of a learning curve in-house for that. So it ended up with network nodes all over the ceiling, uh, backboned with Ethernet. So that way, if at any point we needed to switch over to NetTaps instead of uh, five-pin ports, we could do that. It's all pathway and infrastructure. Uh, and it was neat. It was laid out with how MTV shoots in mind. Uh, the reports that were in the control room, the reports in the hallway, uh, there was... Uh, DMX ports in audio in the video shading room um, and put all over so that they could shoot everywhere. That was one of the sort of notorious aspects of MTV. And the later renovation was after Aeropostale had closed. It was one of the hardest renovations I have ever seen in my life. Oh, We got contacted that it was going to go down. And I remember we were in a uh, construction meeting in the studio in about mid-July. Uh, this is July of 2017. And at this point, no demolition had started. Aeropostale had moved out and that was about it. We're talking about like end of the year, like November, like ideally being done with the Renovite about Thanksgiving. So if MTV wanted to do a New Year's show or something like that, there'd be a few weeks and they could. And at that point, there was still talk of a TRL 2.0 coming back. We're in that meeting and our phones just all start blowing up. We look at it and the president of the network had said the new TRL is going to launch on October 2nd. At that point, from then on, trades worked basically 24-7 in that room Wow! to turn that room over. We got the final design. Dave Edwards did a beautiful set for it and it was to encompass the entire space. You're talking a about a 4,000 square foot space from 44th to 45th, a 360 degree, all white, high gloss set that got approved on September 11th. Can you tell this whole timeline is burned wow. into my memory at this point? And this is in the middle of fashion. This is in the middle of beginning of Broadway season. Like we're begging shops to build it. Caden comes out, pulls a miracle off, builds it. At the same time, they decide we're going to also have a concert out in Times Square, both in front of the Marriott on Broadway and on Minskoff Alley uh, during the same launch. And as fast as grid could get hung, we're hanging lights. Uh, <laughs> there are some fascinating photos of like the room like tarped off and we're hanging lights. And Drew and Derek and the World Stage Gang moved mountains for us. We had the first like 100 production units of the uh, Sola 750s on that job. At the same time, there was a hurricane headed towards uh, Texas. So, like, we had some of the first uh, Chauvet Pixis lights. They wanted some interesting new eye candy light, uh, and that had just came out and looked really good for our application. Hurricane goes to Miami. Like, <laughs> it was every bit of insanity you could imagine, and we are just throwing lights up as quick as the grid goes up, you know, and the first time we fired up a camera, because mind you, it's not just me, like there is no tech infrastructure. Engineering has, is playing as fast as we can. Uh, the first time we saw camera was October 1st on that Sunday. Wow. October 2nd, we went live at three, I think it was 3 PM or 4 PM. And to top it all off and not to make light of it, a tragic event that was the same day as the uh mass shooting in vegas oh boy <laughs> so suddenly any creative content any levity is deflated like yeah. this suddenly has to turn into a much more somber show uh so yes that was one of the, uh, the most tremendously difficult both studio and production builds done almost simultaneously wow <laughs> um i mean obviously you would work with mtv for quite some time at that point mm -hmm. but yep. You know, did they verbalize to you what their goals were? How much did you guide them with respect to like, here are some things I think we, we could, would, should do? I will always appreciate how well MTV has done for me and especially the studio team over there of, of Rob and Mona and Andrea and all of them uh, and Bethany. And they 
put a tremendous amount of faith and Mike Bavona, who was leading the project, put a tremendous amount of faith in me. Uh, I've been working on and off with MTV at that point since 05. So I, I've been working with them for over a decade at that point um, and had done a large majority of the production that happened in their studio. So as they put it, they wanted me to work as their representative to make sure as they put it, if, if I haven't seen it in a decade and change there, I've probably seen a version of it, you know? Yeah, I got it. Uh, so it gave me the opportunity to sort of step back and sort of reflect on what would make sense and also what would play into what already exists, you know? And a lot of my suggestions were ones that aren't outrageous, like let's put some pipe grid in the hallway. We're, you know, at some point we're going to shoot out there, yeah. you know? Um, let's put DMX ports everywhere. Let's plan for shooting anywhere was sort of the ethos in it. And let's make sure the architectural lights can be controlled in a reasonable way or dimmed. And let's make sure every architectural light is color temperature consistent. We went with 4,500. Uh, so that way, no matter what we're shooting in the studio for shooting 32, it's still a shift, but it's not as dramatic as going to 56. And conversely, if we're shooting at 56 and going into the hallway to 45, it's not as big as jumping from 56 to 32. Yeah. Um, you know, and just sort of that, like, there's a, we're going to go from the studio to the hallway. Let's make sure we think about that sort of on a broader holistic approach. Um, and I made those suggestions and everyone was on board. No, you know, a lot of it is poking holes in the theory and making sure everything is sort of covered for what they may do. To do all that, you were able to draw on a lot of information that you already had, a lot of things you had learned. Uh, yep. What are some of these things that you're able to take from production to production? What are those things that you take with you everywhere you go? I, I think it's sort of a couple things. I, and I think it's always easy to get sort of lost in this a little bit. I think it's having, it sounds ridiculous, but it. I think it's wildly important. I think it's having a germ of a concept, having that sort of constant touchstone uh, to always go back to let you be nimble. It lets you be quick. If you're defining your palette based on an image, a concept, an idea, then you don't have to think as hard. Then you don't have to think as much. Then you don't have to, you know, having that sort of touchstone, if we're going to light this and base it around a campfire, then we know what that looks like. Then I know what my, that I'm based in a warm palette. I know where to pull from fairly intuitively and it lets me communicate better. It used to feel like people would come up in this industry and work in a production background and then become a production executive. But more and more, I'm finding higher level folks that I'm dealing with on a, we have to look at this and executive level are coming from non-creative backgrounds. For sure. So having that concept, it becomes important to have the language to bridge that gap. And I don't mean that as a slight to them, they just have a different language skill set. So sometimes I find it's important to be able to say, here, let's look through some pictures. Here, let's just doodle with some crayons even. Like um, that is one of the things that I've always tried to prioritize and carry with me job to job is realizing people all have different languages and not being scared of color. You know, like I think some of them have become very tentative. They don't want to rock the boat. Like, man, let's, let's slap some bright orange on there. Let's go. Let's, you know, lean into some color. Let's get interesting. Like, um, but I find all of it comes back to that germ of the concept and bridging that visual language gap. That actually leads me to another question I had for you, which was about your style, which mm -hmm. I, I feel, you know, from having seen stuff or, you know, having worked on a few mm -hmm. things, it, you know, is a little more edgy than some things I've seen on television. Like, I, I remember, we, you know, we did like a love and hip hop thing and, yep. you know, I was kind of like, well, of course, you don't want me to hit the talent with the moving lights. And you're like, no, 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 it's okay. Yeah. If, you know, during, you know, one of these big moments, the intels hit the performers, that's okay. And I was like, oh, that's, yeah, man. you know, it's kind of refreshing to see someone who wants to see like colored light or um, an intelligent yeah. thing hitting a person rather than it being exclusively scenic or, you know, for example, like letting uh, a strobe hit blowout camera for a second. Oh, heck where yeah. it's like it, I love that. Oh, I love that. Well, and it's like, <laughs> it, it feels more like you're you're connected with what's happening there because you're, you know, you're seeing a reaction Correct. rather than just watching a thing, if you know what I mean. Uh, by a mile, because I think it can look too much like a green screen, frankly, if it's, yes, it, it just looks so cut out and so forced. Like if you're at a concert, if you're doing something like this for real, it has real impact on the world around it. Like let's get a little interesting with it. You know, yeah, like, like your, your eyes, irises, you know, there's a moment before they slam shut when mm -hmm. the blinders go off. Heck yeah. 
And what's fun is you can trick the camera with that. You know what I mean? Like I can force that camera's iris to stay open even longer and really get like, if we can get something funky and interesting and I'll, I'll admit it. I miss as much as I hit on that stuff. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a million of those ideas that I've killed because it doesn't look good, but I think it's worth, why not take 10 seconds, write a cue. That's a wildly outside your comfort zone. Try something neat. Like some of those blind out moments just look, fun i mean one of the series i always go back to i think i sent you a link to because it was uh one of my favorites was the uh mtv push series no i don't know mtv push at all so yeah it was a neat series that came up a couple years ago uh as sort of a up-and-coming artist series and we used to shoot some of them in like uh mtv has a couple little 20 by 20 small studios uh it was meant as an online series just to like sort of feature up-and-coming artists and the creative team uh is awesome for it and just sort of, again, a team I go back years and years, you know, Sarah and Andrea are some of the best. And they just sort of said, you know, fuck it, go for it, mm-hmm. do whatever. And we started off a little more conservatively. And then we finally had this transitional moment where we went out to the knitting factory. And there are two two that I always go back to. Um, when we went to the knitting factory, uh, we had Billie Eilish was a great one we did. And I don't think we used a single white light on her, on anything. Mm -hmm. And everything was about color and interest and contrast. And we wanted to translate that real like rock and roll concert feel into this. What was fun is doing stuff like we would make it as if the talent light was white, but it was actually just a cyan and a magenta meeting and it blends to that white. Nice. So as she moves, you get these interesting sculptural moments. Uh, as the show progressed, um, we took it to a white psych studio uh, and leaned into a heavier concept of that, of let's do like hardcore, super soft beauty lighting, but use something we used uh, either Gemini's or sky panels, uh, overhead net, washed it all out. So if we turned it white, it would look like a makeup commercial. Mm-hmm. You know, it was soft, goopy, flattering, little twinkle in the eye. Except our rule for that was we're never going to make a, a single one of those lights white. Uh, so we did, you know, a magenta base with a deeper magenta fill. So that brighter, darker light became the negative in it. Um, and again, a lot of it's about trust. Uh, those That producing team gave me a mile of leeway but we showed them some of it and we all sort of dug it and fell in love with it. Um, I think it's, I don't know. I like making it real. I like making it interesting and why not? You know, I mean, as long as it looks nice, what's the problem with it hitting people, a little colored light hitting people, a little shape and sculpture. Uh, Cause I think it can be used narratively too. You mentioned the reunion show. Uh, and I think that's a good example. Uh, a typical reunion show love and hip hop or any of them or housewives typically have a host in the middle and then a couch on the left and a couch on the right. So you have four or five people on the left host in the middle, four or five people on the right. Those shows though, live and die on the singles. So you'll cut from person on the camera, left couch to a person on the camera, right couch to a person on the camera, left couch to a person on the camera, right couch, um, because they're back and forth very quick and chatting. Bah, 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 bah. So, in order to help support the narrative, a lot of times you want to get away from it being sort of perfectly lit newscaster lighting. If anyone's sitting on the couch, you know, the normal lighting instinct is to key right over the camera, fill them out evenly on the left and the right, and then they they look fantastic. But I tend to lean towards it, it sounds a little pretentious, a little more cinematically, um, but if they're on the camera left couch, I want to leave their upstage side just a hair darker, just a little sculpt and a little dimmer. Same if they're on the camera right couch. I want to leave their upstage side a little dimmer, a little darker. So now if the director is cutting between camera left couch, camera right couch, camera left couch, camera right couch, you as a viewer, whether you know it or not. You're receiving information. Correct. Of that they're on opposite couches. Because if they were both perfectly lit, they could be anywhere. But now if you know, even in the back of your head, one side's a little dimmer, that side is going to be the host side. It gives you intuitively a tad more sense of the architecture of the room without it being explicit or going to a wide shot. That totally makes sense. It is amazing the things that one can 
explain about where something is taking place or a character's motivations or anything like that using lighting. Yeah. And I think that's a, a special thing about TV is you have control of the viewer's eye by working with the camera and director so specifically and in such a way that you never get that opportunity in theater, you know, in such a subtle and tiny box and being able to really drive that home. That's a pretty neat aspect of television uh, that isn't an opportunity always afforded to theater because it's no matter what a wider, broader picture as being a person in the room. Do you have another example of that? One of my other favorite examples is comic book men. Uh, And what what is this show? I, I don't know this show. So Comic Book Men was a show on AMC uh, hosted by Kevin Smith, uh, reality show. It is one of my favorite shows and one of the happiest shows I got to work on until uh, it ended. Uh, but the premise is it's a sales show. It's like, hey, I have this comic book. Uh, how much is it worth? Or can you get me this? And there'd be celebrity appearances. And the sort of interesting conceit of the show was the guys who work in the shop would join Kevin for a podcast on our podcast set. Mm-hmm. And it was just stuff everywhere, like comic booky paraphernalia everywhere. And lots of nooks, lots of crannies, and everything was about background details. Um, one of the things that were prevalent all over the set were glasses, like, you know, those old, like, superhero glasses with, like, Superman in the pose from yeah. the 80s. You know, there was those all over, and those were one we had to treat very specifically. One of the gags that we did for that show, and I've done on a bunch of reality shows, is literally taking a single LED, a CR2032 battery, and a clothes clip, clipping it together so it makes a little LED thing, and, like, dropping it in the cup. So then that little ping of light it, it's sort of like a moving light flare on a micro scale. Okay. When you just truck across just a little, you just get that one little interesting flare for a millisecond. Um, but it's crafting those tight singles. Whereas, you know, dropping one tiny LED node in a glass on a 60 foot wide set on stage would be doing nothing. Yeah. Whereas for us doing it, it gives a little shape. It gives a little glint. It's a little glimmer. It's a little highlight here and there. There were statues all over the set. Um, and we would put a bunch of those near the base of them. And suddenly you've got, as you're doing those passes in those singles, this little interesting uplight. And you would see like the silhouette of a Batman maquette or something like that, that would give it just a little more shape and form. Um, I think that's the other thing I've leaned on through my whole career is find, find weird lights, man. Like find, you know, it doesn't have to, a light doesn't have to be a light, you know, um, that weird stuff. I mean, Forged in Fire is a show I did years ago and still is running. The first three or four seasons of it were lit in almost its entirety. 75, 80% of the rig were literally clip lights from Home Depot. And this was a show that's now on its eighth or ninth season. Um, it's called Fortune uh, Fire? Forged in Fire. Oh, Forged yeah, in it's Fire. a reality competition show about uh, knife and blade making. Oh, I see. But yeah, that's sort of my take on those background moments, because again, those little tiny little, you know, pings of light here and there and crafting those singles um, is a wildly different technique than theater or broader, you know, live event type stuff um, that you don't necessarily get to dive into a lot. Well, so this leads leads me to a a technical question, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, let's say you want to do that. Let's say that you you do have this idea where you want to build a rig like that one or or like it's something something different. How do like sort of hand built pieces like that get constructed? Who builds them and where do they come from and who's responsible for placing them? Totally. And a lot of that is uh, 52. Like, again, Comic Book Men's a good example. Uh, We treated it very cinematically we built uh a, a coupe light basically so we had a kino flow wall light but we had to like put skirt around it and you know belly it out with diffusion and have that sort of overhead topper look um and we borrowed a lot of film guys a lot of guys who were applicants to 52 who were you know processing and getting on their card and that sort of stuff um a lot of it is sort of hand-drawn napkin drawn stuff uh for the forged in fire when we did the uh as they were dubbed by, I think, Bobby V, Bobby Vazek, uh, the uh, Quadbowskis. They were, you know, four clip lights in a piece of plywood cut out <laughs> like that, uh, you know, with 
clip like screwed into the top, a pigeon plate, a pigeon plate on the top, a little grip arm on top. So they were they're on a little custom soft white. Um, but a lot of that stuff uh, was planned. I mean, it sounds very off the cuff, but a lot of it is fairly meticulously planned. And uh, we for our team, we would prep it into build days or hire a grip team to sort of pre-produce a lot of it. Um, you know, a lot of it was far enough out. Like, you know, when it's tiny little stuff, like uh, the LEDs dropped in a glass, you know, I have a small kit that just travels with me for that stuff. And, uh, you know, the gang is usually amenable to that and, uh, you know, gets a kick out of the weird nonsense that comes out of that bag. Okay. So if that hopefully answers your question. It totally answers my question. Good. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What do you have coming up if people want to see your work, if people want to see stuff you have? Um, uh, what, what, where, where should they tune? Forged in Fire is currently up. MTGdesigns.net. I have a bunch of my nonsense up there. Uh, you can pick and choose and see what I've been up to and uh, hopefully tune in on New Year's Eve and possibly see the weirdest New Year's Eve show this year that has ever been produced because there's going to be something just no show in times square correct at the moment we're planning on being inside maybe ryan will run out at midnight but it'll be something to see all right uh again thank you so so much i hope you have a wonderful afternoon thank you appreciate it thanks for downloading this episode of the casting light podcast visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com use the contact form there to let us know what you think and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there we're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show. Casting Light.